Well, earlier this evening, we sang that wonderful hymn, a newer one, which is rapidly becoming uh, perhaps one of the, the favorites of evangelicalism. It's that hymn, In Christ Alone. The hymn was written around 2001 by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. And as I said, it has quickly become a very popular hymn uh, due in part to the wonderful lyrics that it contains as well as the beautiful music that is joined together with those lyrics. It's memorable, it's profound, it's biblical. It really exhibits all that's good about hymnody, and yet this particular hymn has not been without controversy. In 2012, a 15-person panel representing the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, voted to reject this hymn from uh, their, their hymn book for the denomination. And the reason came down to a part of stanza two, we sang it this evening, it says this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. The issue was with the second line of what I just read to you, which reads, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that leadership committee of PCUSA had approached Keith Getty and Stuart Townend to ask them for permission, at least in their own hymn book, to change the wording from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. What was motivating them was the desire to remove from this beautiful hymn the reference to God's wrath. The the members of this committee did not believe that the cross was an instrument of God's wrath, that wrath didn't have anything to do with the cross, at least not in any way that we should sing about it. For them, this was an uncomfortable doctrine, if it was a doctrine at all, best left unsung. The controversy even made headline news, and of course, due to the uh, theological weakness of of, of many of the churches within evangelicalism, there were a lot of people wondering why this is such a big deal. Why not just change the lyrics? But we can't. Not only because the authors of this hymn have resisted that, but we can't because it expresses truth. God is a God of wrath. To understand that, we have to begin by defining wrath. What do we mean when we speak of God being a God of wrath? What does divine wrath mean? In the most simplest way, we could define wrath this way, that the wrath of God refers to his righteous response to everything that is opposed to his divine perfection. 
Let me say that again. The wrath of God refers to his response to everything that is opposed to his perfection. Perhaps we could couch this in the rhetorical question that Paul asks in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, when he asks this, what fellowship has light with darkness? And this is where the concept of wrath comes in. There cannot be fellowship between light and darkness, between righteousness and evil. So therefore, since God is perfect, there must be a response. God cannot approve or even remain indifferent to that which challenges his character. If he did, if he did not leave sin unpunished, if he did not respond to evil with wrath, he would fail to be the perfect God that he is. But as perfectly righteous, he must hate sin. He he must judge evil as it deserves, and he must defend righteousness. And he must do this not begrudgingly, not as if it's against his own character, but he must hate sin, judge evil, and defend righteousness zealously, for this is what makes God perfectly righteous. J. Packer has summarized it well when, when he puts it in these terms. He writes this, quote, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. Another writer who has written about God's wrath a lot and, and describes it very, very clearly as Jerry Bridges in one of his books, The Gospel for Real Life, he defines or des- describes God's wrath in this way. He writes this, quote, God, by the very perfection of his moral nature, cannot but be angry at sin, not only because of its destructiveness to humans, but more important, because of its assault on his divine majesty. This is not the mere petulance of an offended deity because his commands are not being obeyed. It is rather the necessary response of God to uphold his moral authority in the universe. And though God's wrath does not contain the sinful emotions associated with human wrath, it does contain a fierce intensity arising from his settled opposition to sin and his determination to punish it to the utmost. End quote. That is a, a wonderful summation of the biblical teaching, as we will see in a few moments, related to the doctrine of divine wrath. Now, as we consider this this attribute of God, it is important to note that it is somewhat of a a different 
a different kind of an attribute, if we would call it that. Even though many theologians call it an attribute of God, it is, it is not an attribute in the, in the normal sense. And here's why. God's perfections are those qualities of his essence that he enjoys in himself eternally. They are these perfections that are enjoyed between the members of the Godhead, between the Father, Son, and and, and Holy Spirit, the qualities such as truthfulness and righteousness and holiness and omnipotence and sovereignty and love, etc. But there is no wrath in God, in himself, for himself. There is no wrath that is expressed between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so therefore, it is best to understand that Wrath isn't the same kind of quality as we describe righteousness or love or truthfulness or omnipotence. Rather, wrath is the response of God's perfect righteousness to that which is outside of himself. It is the direction of his righteousness aimed against sin externally. In fact, we could describe grace that same way. In reality, grace, what we define as God's disposition to show favor to the, to the undeserving, grace is, is much the same way. There's no undeserving member of the Godhead that God shows grace to within himself between Father, Son, and Spirit. They are each deserving eternally. But grace is something that is aimed outside of himself, an expression of his goodness that is aimed at those who are deserving, undeserving. And so that's how we can understand grace, and that's how we can understand wrath as well. It is God's perfect righteousness expressed externally to the presence of evil. D.A. Carson explains it this way, Wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath, but there will always be love in God. Where God, in his holiness, confronts his image bearers and their rebellion, there must be wrath, or God is not the jealous God he claims to be, and his holiness is impugned. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. So we can think of it this way. God is righteous in himself, eternally, perfectly. He enjoys this in himself. The members of the Godhead express this to one another. And yet wrath is God's righteousness aimed externally outside of himself to what is sin, to what is evil, to what is contrary and opposed and antithetical to his righteousness. Now, obviously, this doctrine, as we've already mentioned, is under constant attack. It is one of those that is the most despised in the world and often one of the most misunderstood even among Christians. So we have to consider what wrath doesn't mean we have to consider what, what we don't mean when we describe divine wrath. 
Let me focus particularly on, on four misconceptions about divine wrath. First of all, there's the, there's the conception that if God is a God of wrath, it means that he's cruel and capricious. But when we look at the biblical record, the witness, we see that God's wrath is not capricious. It is not cruel because God's wrath is exercised as that expression of perfect righteousness. His wrath is always what we say judicial in nature. It's always judicial in nature. God's wrath always fits the crime. The the intensity of his response is always appropriate. It's always proportionate. It's always just. There's never a time when God overdoes it. It's judicial in nature. It's precise. For example, in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, Yahweh says this, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. This is a very important truth that we must remember that outside of Christ, if you are outside of Christ, you will be judged meticulously according to the state of your heart. It will be put on the, on the balance. You will be judged explicitly according to the state of your mind. You will be judged particularly according to your ways, to your deeds. And the wrath that will be exercised in response will be perfect in its application. Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 emphasizes the same point. It's judicial in nature. Jesus says this, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Every one of them. And as I said before, he cannot overlook some of them. He cannot merely take a broom and sweep them under the rug and say, well, these ones we won't press charges on. These ones we won't apply righteousness to. We'll just forget about them. No, God is not how human courts often work when human courts will look at the, the, the spectrum of a criminal's crimes and then pick out the ones against which it will press charges and apply a sentence. That is not God's wrath. His wrath is meticulous. It is perfect righteousness, and it is neither cruel nor capricious. Secondly, God's wrath is not impulsive or unpredictable, because so often we, we project our expression of wrath onto God. We, we think that God, if he's a God of wrath, must simmer and stew, and he fights back these urges to retaliate, and, and, and then he, in the end, anyway, explodes in some kind of uncontrollable rage. That is not the biblical witness to God's wrath. God is always righteous in his wrath. It never manifests itself too early or too late in light of all of God's perfections, including his patience, including his goodness. 
It is never too little or too much. John Stott has rightly described it this way in terms of God's expression of wrath as being either impulsive or unpredictable. He writes this, His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable but always predictable because it is provoked by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is as steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, such as injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. That God's wrath is is not unpredictable, that God's wrath is, is not impulsive, is based on a very important theme in Scripture, and that is the theme of reaping what you sow. The concept of cause and effect. God has made this law abundantly clear, and so whatever is reaped in the end is not the result of some kind of unpredictable approach to dealing with sin. It'll follow God's law meticulously. A third misconception is this, that as a God of wrath, God is is described as such only in the Old Testament. And that there's a strong differentiation that's made between how God is revealed in the Old Testament and how he's revealed in the New Testament. And some either imply this by how they drive a wedge between the Testaments. Some will try to unhitch from the Old Testament. And some will just plain deny that the Old Testament is Scripture. They will believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of law, of judging, of vengeance. But the God revealed by Jesus Christ is a God of love and mercy and that the two are different. This goes all the way back to the start of church history. We have a a heretic by the name of Marcion who lived 85 to 160 AD. It's roughly overlapping even with the Apostle John and certainly with John's disciples. And Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. They're two different gods, and that we must focus on the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The problem was is that Marcion had a lot of difficulties then with New Testament writings. And whenever he came across texts in the New Testament writings that elevated or quoted the law of the Old Testament, he would seek to remove those from the New Testament canon. One who wrote against Markian, to a significant degree, was the early church father Tertullian, who wrote about a century after, and, and Tertullian said this about Markian's discovery. He said, a better God has been discovered, one who is neither offended nor angry nor inflicts punishment, who has no fire warming up in hell and no outer darkness wherein there is shuddering and gnashing of teeth. He is merely kind. Of course, 
He forbids you to sin, but only in writing. That was Markian, and and many sought to write against Markian because even in the early church, Markian's teachings gained traction and were were quite popular for a period of time as as those early uh, Christians and members of churches were confused about this doctrine of God's wrath. But it certainly did not end there in the early church. Markian's views continue to be regurgitated today. An example of this is, is Andy Stanley, who has claimed that the church today needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament, essentially arguing that what the Old Testament presents about the character of God, including his wrath, is not what people today need to hear. Well, it's that very kind of, uh, of understanding that explains why the church is in such bad shape today. You have others, such as a, a writer by the name of Gregory Boyd, a philosopher, who also discards the testimony of the Old Testament related to God's wrath. And he says this, when we interpret these divine portraits of God's judgment in the Old Testament with the resolved conviction that the true character of God is fully revealed in the crucifixion of Christ, we are able to see beyond the surface appearance of these portraits. In other words, beyond what mere exegesis can unveil, and we discern the cruciform character of God in their depth. In other words, what Boyd is arguing is that the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, giving himself as a sacrifice, essentially cancels out all the literal meanings of those Old Testament texts. Those things aren't really true. We've got to discard those literal meanings and instead find an allegorical meaning in them in which God is not a God of wrath, but he's a God of kindness and only wants to be gentle to you. But we have to remember that in the Old and New Testaments, there is no consistency. In the Old Testament, we see that the text, the texts teach that God is a God of compassion as well as a God of wrath. And we see that in the New Testament, God is a, a God of wrath as well as a God of compassion. There is no distinction. You can see some of the greatest language used to describe the grace and compassion of God comes from the Old Testament. And some of the most severe language of God's impending wrath that will come upon this world in a cataclysmic manner comes from the New Testament. Read, for example, Revelation chapter 19. That's in the New Testament, not in the Old Let me read, in fact, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. These are words that few people will preach. Certainly not many will use these in evangelism, although it's uh, it's a good thing to do that. Revelation 19, 11 starts this way. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
And he has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Indeed, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. And Jesus Christ, although he has come to us as our wisdom and righteousness and justification, our atonement, our forgiveness for sins, he will come against evil and against sin as the God of wrath. In Romans chapter 3, Paul responds to this kind of an idea which considers the wrath of God to be uncomfortable or somehow demeaning. And he says this in verses 5 and 6, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? In other words, what he's arguing there is that in God's response to our unrighteousness, there will be the opportunity for God to demonstrate his righteousness. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? There's a fourth misconception of God's wrath, and it's to suppose that God's wrath is like ours. Again, our problem is, is that we start with our own experience of anger, of vengeance, of wrath, and we project that upon God and and then think that that's what it means in Scripture when the text calls God a God of wrath. But we have to remember that our anger and God's anger are very, very different things. So it behooves us right now even to answer the question, what is anger? What is anger? Well, if we define it in man, we can come up with this definition. It's provided by Robert Jones in his book, Uprooting Anger, and he defines anger this way, and it's a good definition as it applies to us. Anger in man is this. It's a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against something perceived to be evil. But God's wrath is different than man's wrath in at least three ways when we look at that definition. First of all, God's wrath is not a response like ours. When we think of our response, our response is determined by emotions. We are affected beings. We're limited. We're fickle. And so we respond that way. God does not respond the way that we respond. Moreover, God's wrath is not merely a perception of a negative moral happening that we must judge. Our perception is skewed and biased, but when God responds in his way, his response is based on absolute truth, perfect knowledge of the circumstances. 
And that is very different than our response. And then thirdly, God's wrath, the way it is applied, the way it is motivated is not tainted by sin. When we get angry so often, it is out of conceit. Our own egos have been damaged. Our own egos have been challenged. And so we respond. But with God, it's totally the opposite. Indeed, God does defend himself, but he does so out of perfection, not out of conceit. And that is so different than how we experience and how we apply and how we respond with anger. In fact, as James 1 verse 20 says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There is a categorical difference. Now, obviously, as we grow in Christ-likeness, our anger will be sanctified. In that sense, anger is a communicable attribute. We, too, are to respond to evil and not remain ambivalent or neutral. We must remember that in the vast majority of cases, our anger has been impacted by sin, and that is not God's. Now, when it comes to the testimony of God's wrath, where do we find this? And I want to take you through a few categories of Scripture here before we conclude with some implications of this very important teaching. First of all, when we look at the biblical testimony that undergirds the definition that we made, we, we find that God is a God of wrath, a God of jealousy, a God of vengeance. There are, in Scripture, many statements that either simply declare God as a God of wrath or describe God's activities of vengeance. And they are abundant in Scripture. Let me read just a few of these. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here we have a direct declaration. He is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Psalm 5 verse 4, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, and no evil dwells with you. That is a declaration of God's absolute distinction from anything evil. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The psalmist there is speaking about the continuous nature of evil. He's not speaking of eternity in in a whole, but the experience of evil in space and time and says that God has indignation every day because in space and time, evil has existed for a, a long time. Psalm 94, verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Romans 12 verse 9, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12 verse 9, for our God is a consuming fire. A second category of testimony can be seen in all those biblical texts which describe specific things against which God stands. God hates that which is contrary to his essence. And scripture is abundantly clear on that. Just a few examples. He is against false worship. He hates false worship in the purest sense of the word hate. Deuteronomy 6, 14 to 15. Here the Lord says, You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. God is a God against sexual perversion. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 6. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you be made righteous and holy. And then he goes on to describe that. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother. He's speaking here in terms of adultery and fornication, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger. That's how serious the Lord Jesus treats sexual perversion, the perversion of his plan for human sexuality. God is against and hates arrogance. Proverbs 16 verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Unrighteousness, God God hates unrighteousness. Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, su- who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God hates injustice, Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And then this Massive statement in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 of all the different things that the Lord hates. Notice what's listed here. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife. Among brothers. Yes, the scriptures testify repeatedly. The list could go on of all the things that the Lord hates because they stand antithetical to his character. We also see, thirdly, that God hates sinners. God hates sinners. Now, to say that phrase in some contexts would get you thrown out. To say that statement in some contexts would elicit all kinds of accusations of bigotry, of intimidation, of intolerance. In fact, we often hear the statement, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. 
Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to that statement, but it has to be qualified immensely. Because in and of of itself, it is not a full expression of the character of God. That statement, just as it reads, is not full, and therefore it is not completely true. It's not what the Bible actually says. So, for example, in Psalm 5, verses 5 to 6, notice this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Notice it doesn't just say you hate iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11 verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Not on his sins, although that is true as well. But let's not miss the language. Let's not cover up It says, the wrath of God abides on the one who does not obey the Son. Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul calls our former status, what we were before we were made alive by God, to believe, to be forgiven. Our status before regeneration was this, we were by nature children of wrath. And that is not a reference to the fact that we had wrath toward one another. That is a reference to the fact that by nature, we were objects of wrath. You can see the same thing. I won't read it now, but in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 to 9, it is only just for God to repay those, those people who persecute his church. I like what D.A. Carson says on this. He says, the cliche that God hates the sin but loves the sinner is false on the face of it and should be abandoned. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we are told that God hates the sinner. His wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on the sinner, uh, both on the sin and on the sinner. That leads then to the fourth category of testimony. God's wrath for the sinner is realized in hell. Yes, hell is a real place. Matthew 10 verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the idea there is not a snuffing out of existence, but an eternal destruction. Matthew 13, verse 50, Jesus says, So it'll be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul says in his Areopagus sermon in Athens in Acts 17.30 that God has fixed a day in which he will judge 
the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of this man by raising him from the dead. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Paul says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, he's speaking to unregenerate man here, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Gentile. And then, of course, in Revelation chapter 20, we read of the, that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. And if anyone's name is not found written on the book of life, he too will be thrown into that lake of eternal fire. Thankfully, there is a fifth category of testimony related to God's wrath, and it is this. God's wrath for the chosen is propitiated by Christ. What a precious truth that is. Paul focuses on this in Romans 3 after describing the wrath that is reserved for the sinner. He goes on to say this in verses 23 and 26 of chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is, as Paul says, the just one and the justifier. He is just in that no sin is left unpunished, but he is the justifier because in Christ Jesus, the sins of all who would ever believe meet their full payment And those who are in Christ Jesus are relieved of their responsibility to pay. Romans 5 verses 8 and 9, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In Christ Jesus The wrath of God is fully exhausted for all who are in Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges again says this, Jesus did not just die to give us peace and purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. He died to reconcile us to a holy God who is alienated from us because of our sin. He died to ransom us from the penalty of sin, the punishment of everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord. He died that we, 
the just objects of God's wrath should become by his grace heirs of God and co-heirs with him. And here is the reality. I know in this room there are, there are many who are in Christ. But if it were not for Christ, each one of us would face eternal hell. And we need to think of that more often. That if it were not for Christ and what he did on the cross, that our only fate would be that place of fire where there will be eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth and that that experience would be pure and necessary justice. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who took the sin and the punishment of all who would ever believe and He, in His unique status, was able to bear all of that on the cross so that there would be no more wrath for anyone who would ever believe. That it is, as Jesus said, finished. And that for those who are in Christ, the concept of wrath still exists, but its application to you has been canceled. It has no relationship to you anymore. Well, that brings us to our conclusion and thinking of what all of this testimony about God's wrath demands from us. How do we respond to this? First of all, we must be zealous for God's wrath. Too often we are uncomfortable speaking of this characteristic of God. And indeed, this is somewhat understandable because we identify with sinful man. And, and we know what this wrath means. And so we're uncomfortable talking about it in that sense because it is painful. And yet we must not be uncomfortable speaking of divine wrath. We must look at it also in terms of its implications for a holy and righteous God. We dare not be uncomfortable. We dare not be of the opinion that this is somehow something bad or something that we must shrink back from, that this is an unfortunate doctrine. It isn't. It is the expression of perfection. We see that even in that quote in Exodus 34, 6 to 8, where we, we see how God proclaims himself to Moses. He proclaims both his compassion and his wrath. And Moses, at the end of it all, he, he does not feel any kind of perplexion. He, he doesn't wonder how these things really go together. No, he sees them in their beautiful harmony. And what does he do? Verse 8 says, Moses made haste to bow toward the earth and worship. We must worship God, not only for his compassion, but also for his wrath. That God is a God of wrath makes him worthy in that of our worship. So we must be zealous about this. We must speak of it. The world needs to hear that this is our God. This is who he is. This is who he has revealed himself to be. And we don't do the world any benefit 
by silencing this doctrine and, and somehow unhitching the gospel from the biblical testimony. By doing that, we t- take the gospel and turn it into a, a false gospel. To the extent that we downplay the wrath of God, we downplay the glory of God. Listen now to what Leon Morris has stated on this issue. He says, unless we give a real content to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. For if there is no ill desert, God ought to overlook sin. We can think of forgiveness as something real only when we hold that sin has betrayed us into a situation where we deserve to have God inflict upon us the most serious consequences. And that is upon such a situation that God's grace supervenes. When the logic of the situation demands that he should take action against the sinner, and yet he takes action for him, then, and then alone can we speak of grace. But there is no room for grace if there is no suggestion of dire consequences merited by sin. You know, perhaps we can say that the reason why we might be seeing so few conversions from a human standpoint. We know salvation is of the Lord. But perhaps the whole gospel isn't being proclaimed. And it's not being proclaimed when we are silent on the wrath of God. When we are silent on the wrath of God, not only do we silence wrath, we silence grace. And we make the gospel just some flowery kind of nonsense. Now, the gospel only makes sense against the backdrop of God's wrath. Secondly, second implication is this. Rejoice that you, O Christian, are not destined for wrath. The Apostle Paul regularly told his own readers to meditate on the wrath of God, but also rejoice that it was not for them. And that is precious. This was certainly the case in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, where Paul affirms and reminds the Thessalonians that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We are to rejoice in light of Romans 8 verse 1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are to relish those precious words of Jesus on the cross as he made that final payment for that last sin of that person who would be the last to believe in the period of redemptive history and he said it is finished. Those words must cause us to rejoice. And again, perhaps, brother, maybe the reason why you do not understand the joy that you need to have, the joy that must be yours in Christ, is because you've reflected little on the wrath of God. 
No, you reflect on the wrath of God. You see what the wrath of God is all about. And all of a sudden, all your circumstances change. Then it's not so bad that your car broke down. It's not so bad that you lose a job. It's not so bad that you can't afford what you want to afford. It's not so bad that you have problems in this life when you know that the wrath of God has been exhausted in Jesus Christ on your behalf. All of a sudden, you have all the reason in the world to be singing with joy. And that's why we can sing that song and and our voices may not be that beautiful, but boy, this is precious when we sing those words, those words, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. Third, meditate on God's wrath as a means of sanctification. This is helpful for your fight against sin. Paul says this to the Romans in in Romans 11 verse 22. He he calls upon them to behold, to behold the kindness and the severity of God. And this is helpful for us too. In your fight against sin, what's very helpful and is part of the process of mortifying sin is that we dwell upon wrath, that we remind ourselves continually, God hates this sin. We, we focus on that. We remember that. And, and, you know, so much in our world today is quickly to tell us that, that, there, that, that God's wrath is not an issue for you anymore. Don't think of it anymore. God loves you and, and he has got a wonderful plan for your life. And, and you wonder why you, you seem powerless to fight against sin. Well, it is so important to fight against sin to remember that God hates it. And that it That sin elicits from God this righteous response. Indeed, indeed, that wrath has been erased for you. But merely by focusing on how much God hates sexual perversion, how God hates divorce, how God hates deceit, a lying tongue, and so on, that is an important tool in the arsenal as we fight against temptation. Fourthly, Hate the things that God hates. We cannot remain ambivalent. We cannot remain neutral. Yes, we are to remember that, but by the grace of God, there go we. We are to have that kind of humility that says to the sinner, listen, I, I, I approach you and I beseech you to turn to Christ from your sin. And I do that not because I was the one who was so wise and powerful to figure this out. God saved me. I did not find him. So we have a humility, but at the same time, we must speak out against sin. We cannot remain ambivalent. And again, this is where the the, the church goes astray and why there's so much confusion in our world today over things like transgenderism. There's confusion because the The church no longer hates the things that God hates. It's forgotten what God hates. It's forgotten that God even hates. Psalm 97 verse 10 is a command. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones, who delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate 
the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Psalm 119, verse 104, verse 113, verse 128, verse 163. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate. That's the psalmist speaking. He had been impacted by the character of God. He could not be neutral or ambivalent to the things that stand contrary to the character of God. And so he responded like his God. And we must as well. We must hate the sin that we see on the screen. We must hate the sin that we hear in conversations of slander and gossip. We must hate the sin that we see on billboards. We must hate the sin that we see in interaction between husbands and wives who hate each other. We must hate that sin And that hatred should drive us to intercessory prayer, beseeching on behalf of the Lord that he would do what he's done in our lives to bring us salvation. Oh, brothers, may we not remain ambivalent. This doctrine requires us to action. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross are so precious to us. It is finished. And on that cross, as he died, your wrath for us who are in Christ was exhausted. Righteously, justly, completely And now we enjoy that no condemnation status. We marvel at this precious truth. And eternity will not be long enough for us to express our gratitude. We pray you'd give us a deeper love for this truth. A greater courage to speak about it. To warn the world of the wrath that is to come. And we pray you'd use us in that activity to draw many souls to the precious gospel that they too can know that their sins have been paid for in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.